You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Cool. So uh, before we start, um, one of the biggest misconceptions about Christianity and the Bible in general is that the Bible is a collection of moral stories, right? Like most of us have heard this argument from our friends that, um, or, or we've heard, we know this belief, right? Because maybe we believed it at one time. Our culture believes that the Bible is a collection of stories meant to teach us um, a moral lesson or wisdom or about a hero um, or help us through a situation, right? Teach us history. And while the Bible can do all of those things, and it does some of them very well, um, that's not the point of the Bible, right? It's actually telling one story. Um, and if you'll indulge me, I want to read to you um, from a children's book called The Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, it's by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And so I'll invite all the children to come up now and listen. Okay, none. Got it. Uh, cool. <laughs> um, but they'll, they're getting older. They'll be here eventually. Um, But yeah, I want to read some of this because Sally Lloyd-Jones, in writing this Bible for children, um, her intro is brilliant, and it it sums up everything I want to say better than I could say it. So um, I need this reminder, right? So let let me read this for you. Um, Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as we find out when we read it, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make big mistakes. Sometimes they do them on purpose. They get afraid, they run away, and they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful fairy tale that has come true in real life. The best thing about the story you see is that it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible but all the stories are telling one story. The story of how God loves his children and came to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The pieces, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon everything depends. This is the child who will one day save us all. So in this part of Matthew, we're being introduced to that child, right? And that's what Christmas is about. We're being introduced to Jesus, the Savior. He's born. Uh, But in this part of Matthew, we're not in a linear story anymore. Matthew... Uh, 
works to root the person of Jesus in the story of the Old and New Testament, right? He weaves prophecy and storytelling um, into the fabric of the account of Jesus. It's not a coincidence. This text places Jesus not only as the center of the people of Israel, but the center of our world. The story of God and his people and his work to rescue them is the story the Bible tells. So let's unpack this specific text uh, and laser focus in on this section, Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Uh, it's told in three parts, which we'll call Acts. Um, for summation, we have Act 1, the flight to Egypt. Act 2, Herod's killing of the children of Bethlehem. And Act 3, the return to Nazareth of Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. And as we unpack this narrative, um, notice that each of the narratives mention a prophecy fulfilled. Um, so we'll spend some time walking through the narrative just briefly, and then we'll spend some time unpacking the narrative or the prophecies and what they mean. Uh, and then at the end, we'll talk about what that means for us today. I, I like threes, so we're going to do three narratives, three prophecies, and three applications. Is that all right? Cool. Uh, cool, so let's start. Uh, part one, act one. Uh, the flight to Egypt, right? So starting in verse 13, I'll reread. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, which fulfills what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So in verse 13, we see Joseph is yet again visited by an angel of the Lord. Um, and if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know that the first time Joseph is visited by an angel of the Lord, the angel says what? It says, your fiance Mary will give birth to a child, and she's a virgin. And that son will be named Emmanuel, God with us, and call him Jesus, right? So that's what uh, he will be called and he will save, save us from our sins. That's what Joseph, um, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him that. And lo and behold, Mary gives birth to Jesus as a virgin, which Joseph is aware of. And not only is he aware that she gives birth as a virgin, he's aware that there's something special about Jesus because men travel from all over the world to worship him and give him gifts. And they're not just Jewish men, they're Gentiles too, non-Jewish men. The wise men travel, right? So the second time an angel appears to Joseph, he listens. He didn't have a choice to listen the first time, but now he actually got, has to do something, right? He, he has to go to Egypt. He has to flee. Men are seeking to destroy Jesus. Um, so Joseph knows that what God decreed about Mary came to pass, right? And about Jesus came to pass. Um, and then he flees to Egypt by night. And in the end, we have a prophecy that's fulfilled, which we'll dig into in a minute. Uh, so Act 2, Act two, Herod kills the, child, the children of Bethlehem, right? So before we read the verse, let's, let's check in on Herod. The last time we saw him last week, uh, the wise men come and Herod meets them, right? The wise men come and Herod says, uh, when you find him, let me know and I'll come worship him too. But Herod wants to not worship him, but kill him. Because Herod right now, under Caesar, is king of the Jews. But these wise men are saying, Jesus is king of the Jews. And not only that, he's come to save us all. And that's, that's frightening for Herod, right? So what's his plan? To usurp the throne, 
right? He, he's like, these people are going to think Jesus is the king. And I don't want that, so I'll kill him. But God has other plans. Um, God intervenes by sending a messenger to the wise men and says, go home a different route. And so here's where we pick up with Herod. Um, Herod sees when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he becomes furious and he sends Uh, He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the male children in the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So that fulfills what was said by the prophet Jeremiah. So Herod, upon realizing he's been fooled by the wise men and thwarted by God, uh, commits an atrocity, right? And what what we know uh, outside of the Bible about Herod is that he's atrocious. Uh, He kills his favorite wife. There's a problem because he has a favorite wife, first of all. And second of all, he kills her. Um, he's a monster. And so it's, not, it's really not out of his nature to say, oh, well, Jesus is probably growing up in Bethlehem. I'll just kill all the kids. It's sickening. But Matthew tells us that this fulfills what was said by the prophet, um, which we will talk about in a minute. Let's continue with the narrative. Act 3, the return of Nazareth. Uh, Act 3. Starting in verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to, in a dream to Joseph, that's angel number three, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph rises and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, the son of Herod, was reigning over Judea, he was afraid to go there and being warmed in a dream, fourth warning, uh, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, Galilee and went into the city of Nazareth, which fulfills what was spoken by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So here we have another angel, the third angel, as a messenger of God saying, those who seek the child's life are dead, which for the Jews reading this, that's not the first time they've heard that. <laughs> Moses, in the book of Exodus, is told the same thing by God. Those who seek your life are dead, return to the people of Israel. But we'll unpack that in a minute, too. The messenger says, it's safe to go back. You can go home. But as Joseph enters Israel, he finds not Herod, but Archelaus on the throne. And we aren't given a time indication here, but what we do know historically is that Archelaus is worse than Herod. And Herod's atrocious, right? History tells us that Caesar removes Herod for his cruelty and his uh, incompetence. So Caesar, who left Herod on the throne, when, when Archelaus gets on the throne, Herod, Caesar's actually like, this guy's a little too radical for me, where Herod had killed children. So Archelaus is ruling, and Joseph is told to go back, and so he's scared, rightfully so. But again, an angel appears and says, uh, inferring that they'll be safe in Galilee, says, go to Galilee, go to Nazareth, and you'll be safe, which, which uh, fulfills a prophecy. And we know because Jesus lived a long life, um, moderately long until his crucifixion, he is safe in Nazareth to grow up. So that's the story in three acts. Um, that's the story. Let's talk about some of these prophecies, though, because they, they're meant to tell us a lot about what's going on here. There are three. There's one in each act. And before we talk about them, let's remember That the book of Matthew, like all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written from a specific perspective, right? Um, They're written to a specific audience, even. 
Matthew is no exception. It's the written account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, but it's written primarily for the Jewish people. More than any other book, the people reading Matthew would hear these prophecies and understand exactly where they're from in the old scriptures, understand their context and what they infer. So we have to do a little bit of work um, to get where they were. But let's look at the first prophecy in Act 1. Joseph and Mary and the infant Jesus are called to Egypt by a messenger, and then they're called out of Egypt, which fulfills this. Um, And they remained there until the death of Herod. That was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son, which is directly quoted in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. You're free to turn there if you want, which says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So let's stop there for a second. Hosea is writing these words about Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God. But um, Matthew is saying that also is talking about Jesus, right? So the nation of Israel uh, is in the book of Exodus. They're in slavery and bondage in Egypt, and and Moses, um, God compels Moses to call them out of Egypt because he loves them. When Matthew applies this to Jesus, it does two things. Uh, First, it tells us that Jesus is the beloved son of God, right? Out of Egypt, I called my son, whom I loved. And second, it's revealing that Jesus is fulfilling scripture. This is the argument Matthew's making. Jesus is doing what Israel never could have done by retracing the foundational experiences of the people of Israel. Hang with me. Just as Israel, the people of God, are called out of Egypt by God, Matthew is showing us that Jesus, the Son of God, is called out of Egypt by God. Or said differently, Matthew builds a case to us about what God planned to do through Jesus Christ, right? And it runs through the whole of Scripture. It's the full and complete story of God's people, and it's reached a climax in the coming of the Savior King's Son. Hosea continues in chapter 11, um, excuse me, verse 3. It says, yet it was I who taught them to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases their yoke. And I bent down to them, and I fed them. So God's, God's bending down to the people of Israel is realized in Jesus right? Like God literally bends down to earth in the form of his son, of a human. And it shatters the notion, that that verse alone shatters the notion that there's anything we can strive and do to reach up to God, right? There's nothing anymore. God bends down. He eases the yoke of our jaws, which is, that's like the muzzle thing on a horse that hurts the horse and gets them to do more things. He eases that. He eases our burden. He wraps us in his arms heals us, he bends down and feeds us. He loves us as a father loves a child, and we know that through Jesus' work on the cross, right? That love is now extended to us through him. So the people of God are called from Egypt in Hosea and Exodus, and Jesus is called from Egypt in Matthew and Hosea as the true son of God. Let's look at prophecy 2. It says this, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, 
She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So this is, um, it's, it's quoted in Matthew, but it's from Jeremiah 31, um, verse 15 specifically. Now again, remember Matthew is writing this, uh, he's writing this for all of us, but specifically for the, go- uh, the gospel for the Jews, right? Which means immediately that they read this verse of Rachel weeping and they know the history, the context, and the rest of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Ramah uh, is simply considered the burial ground for Rachel. Um, it's near Bethlehem, which is important because that's where the massacre just took place. Um, but Rachel is the wife of Jacob and considered, uh, or she's the physical wife of, or physical mother of Joseph, but considered the symbolic mother of the nation of Israel. And this passage in Jeremiah refers to her lament of Israel in exile, right? They're in Babylon right now. And so Rachel's mourning is heard. Her children are not in where they were promised to be. But not only that, her mourning is extended um, to all the sons of Israel, including these murdered by Herod in Bethlehem. And also, as Rachel mourns the nation of Israel in exile, so too does she mourn the infant Jesus in exile in Egypt. Jeremiah does not write of Rachel without hope. Those who know this passage in Jeremiah, especially the Jews reading this, would never disassociate it with the end of Jeremiah. Right? They don't even disassociate it with the next verse. So you have, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. And then the next verse, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. There is a reward from your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back to the land of the enemy, from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. So the immediate mourning of Rachel is, is comforted by God's words. And then if you're still in Jeremiah 31 and you skip to verse 31, it says this. Behold, the days of the Lord are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. Skipping ahead, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor um, saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their inequity and I will remember their sin no more. You would do yourself a favor if you went home and read all of Jeremiah 31 and just soaked in it this week. We cannot disassociate Rachel's weeping with the promise of the rest of the chapter. The Israelites and the Jewish people who read this would never have done that, and we shouldn't do it now. Matthew reminds us, and Rachel, through Rachel, um, He's reminding us of this, not only to remind us that Israel was in exile, but of God's mourning for death and his plan for restoration, which that plan is Jesus, right? That's what Matthew is telling us. So before we talk about the implications of that account um, and these accounts for the readers, uh, we have one more prophecy to explore. In the third act, uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus return to Israel from Egypt because um, of the atrocities being committed by the new king, they settle in Nazareth instead of Bethlehem, right? Which fulfills what the prophets say that he would be a Nazarene. And this is interesting for us, and we have to unpack it for two reasons. The first reason is we have no record of any prophet saying that he would be a Nazarene. We don't. No prophet said that. However, Matthew 
speaks about this prophecy differently than he speaks about all the other prophecies. In the other prophecies, he says, this fulfilled what the prophet said, this. This fulfilled what the prophet said, this. And he specifically said it. But in this prophecy, he uses a plural. This fulfills what the, prophecy, what the prophets had said because he's from Nazareth. So we have different language that's, more speci- that's less specific and more sweeping. Um, and there's a lot of scholarly argument on word structure here, uh, but I'll synthesize it as this. Um, the language shifts from, from specific to sweeping because what the prophets say about Jesus is this, that he will be humble, he will be despised, he will be rejected, lowly, not esteemed, The thrust of prophets in the Old Testament surrounding the Messiah drives at a humble and low man. Multiple prophets talk about this. David, the Psalms, uh, the prophet Micah, Daniel, in Isaiah 53 it says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one whom men hide their faces from. We esteemed him not, he was despised. And this is important because had they have gone back to Bethlehem, Jesus of Bethlehem would not have carried that connotation. Jesus of Nazareth carries that connotation. Look in uh, the Gospel of John, Nathaniel says to Philip, can anything good come of Nazareth? But Bethlehem is a holy city. It's the city of David, right? It's a city of kings. It's a city of royal lineage. So it's important that Jesus is born there because the prophets say he'll be born there. born there. But it's also important that he's not known to be from there because Nazareth is nowhere, right? Um, Bethlehem is Rome. It's London. It's Paris. It's Houston. Nazareth is Nagadocious. Nazareth is Galveston. <laughs> Nazareth is Dallas. <laughs> I know, amen. Uh, Nazarene here means nobody, right? Nazarene means nobody, which is why all the other gospels, when they hear Jesus from Nazareth, they balk at the fact that he's from there. Like, pff, what has ever good come out of Nazareth? It's nowhere, but it fulfills the disposition that the prophets foretold of. So there we have it. Uh, If you want to hear more about uh, that kind of argument and the study there, uh, feel free to email me, and I'll send you some resources. But there we have it, three prophecies, three fulfilled, three packed with meaning and implications for the readers uh, in the nation of Israel and for us. So the question is, what is Matthew showing us, right? And we've danced around it, but let's, let's drill it. Let me tell another story from the Bible. It sounds like this one. It's a story of a murderous king who is killing children in the region. And to save a child, the family hides him in Egypt. And he leads the people of God to a redeemed promised land. He leads them out of the hand of, hands of bondage and evil and sin and delivers them the law. This is the story of Moses. And when we read the Bible as it's intended to be read, not as separate stories, but as one story, we know that Moses provides a foretaste of the true king, Jesus will come and save and redeem. Let's, let's unpack that bit by bit. 
Jesus is hidden in Egypt from a murderous king, right? Moses is hidden in Egyptian bushes um, from a murderous king, Pharaoh, who's killing children, right? Jesus returns to Israel when Matthew 2.20 says those who seek the child's life are dead. Moses returns to the people of Israel when God says in Exodus 4.9, those seeking your life are dead, right? And the story where we'll go in the next couple of weeks will continue. In, uh, in the next chapter, in Matthew 3, Jesus will be baptized, right? And just the same way Moses, when he leads the people of God through the Red Sea, is baptizing them in the waters of the Red Sea. So through Jesus, we are led from death and sin and bondage to a glorious life as the new people of God. And in response to this truth, we get baptized. We have baptisms coming up on January 8th to proclaim just this. Folks have been led from death and bondage to life, right? And the people of Israel, when they cross the Red Sea, are led from death and bondage to life. And looking ahead in chapter 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And thinking of the story of Exodus, the people of God wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But they fall victim to temptation. They immediately worship a golden calf. Jesus, sitting next to Satan, does not fall victim to temptation. Right? And finally, God gives Moses the law on Mount Sinai. It's a grace to the people there because they fail so easily at being righteous. They forget so much of what God did for them in Exodus. They start worshiping other gods. And God, as a merciful, loving father, spells it for them. Here's what the law says. Just do this. And just like Moses brings, God, Moses brings God's law down to the Israelites, God bends down and fulfills the law in Jesus. Perfectly. The only man in history able to fulfill the law. The Jews couldn't fathom or grasp righteousness, so God spelled it out for them, and they still failed. But he spells it out for them. We can't fathom or grasp righteousness, right? That's why we have a prayer of confession. But, Jesus, but God doesn't just spell it out for us. He fulfills it for us in his son. That's why the prophets say he will bend down to us. So Moses brings the law, and Jesus fulfills the law, right? It's not a coincidence. Matthew is shouting at us that Jesus fulfills all this. Jesus is truer and better than Moses. He allows death to pass over us, delivers us to the promised land from slavery, from sin. He, God calls us out of the bondage of our lives and delivers us through his son. It's a wonderful story for me and for a lot of us in this room. So three quick applications and we'll be done. Um, application one, uh, God is sovereign. God is in control. So look at the kingdom of Herod, right? Herod is a pawn. He's a footnote in the story of Jesus. The evil of King Herod is still used by God to bring forth the fulfillment of prophecy. But don't, don't make a mistake here. When Matthew points us to Rachel and her mourning, he's showing us that God mourns for this evil and this loss. But hope comes in the life of Jesus. Herod echoes into eternity as a failure, as a bringer of death, and a failed usurper. He fails to kill King Jesus. 
And that, for us, is good news. Application two, our response to evil and fear is faith and obedience to God's word. So look at Joseph. In response to the messengers of God, he goes, he listens, he gets up, he acts. He gets scared, but he still goes. God's will is revealed to Joseph through the messengers of God. So how do we know what God's will is? Because if you're like me, an angel hasn't appeared to you. And maybe if, if you, that has happened, I really want to hear about it. <laughs> um, we know God's will because he's revealed it in his word, right? Joseph only had the Old Testament scriptures. We have the full story. It's revealed to us in his message, fulfilled in Jesus, revealed in the holy word of God. That means we should bask in it, we should read it, we should study it, we should go to it. And God's will being revealed doesn't mean it's going to tell you who to date. It doesn't mean it's going to tell you where to live, what job to take, what car to drive. But as uh, Pastor Thabiti uh, Anyabwile says, it will aim us. The scripture will aim us at God's glory. So the gospel with the gift of the Holy Spirit will reframe our lives in such a way that we are aimed at the glory of God, which means all decisions are informed, right? So God's will changes what our aim is. It informs everything. So that's our response. Bask in the word. Finally, application three, uh, as the Jewish people are being invited by Matthew to accept and believe that Jesus is king of the Jews, so are we to believe that he is the Messiah. We're being invited here. Come and believe in him as king and savior and redeemer and friend. God has always gone to great measure to care for his people. He has been sovereign over their circumstances. He reveals himself to them. He cares for them. He bends down to us in the form of his son. He feeds us with his own body and blood, fulfilling the law and the scriptures of old. God loves his people, and he wants you to be his people. If you don't believe that, try it out. The God of the universe right now is beckoning you. He is calling, come out of Egypt and be my son. All stories echo the gospel because the gospel story is written in our hearts. That's what Jeremiah says. God's mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his justice. All these themes are written on the hearts of men and women because they're his theme, they're his thumbprint. We only get the full realized story for ourselves in Jesus. The tension is released, the story is climaxed. We get resolve in the Savior King's birth, life, death, and resurrection. He is born to fulfill the prophecies. He lives fulfilling the law. He dies in our place, fulfilling God's justice and mercy. And this is important. He rises in victory, allowing us to do the same. Perfect fulfillment, perfect justice, and perfect grace are realized on the cross. And that is what Advent is. That is what Christmas is. It's a celebration of the Christ. He has come. He is with us, Emmanuel. We go into, the, into Christmas singing the gospel, declaring it in gift and deed and word and song and mood, 
We live out the gospel as it has been lived out for us in Christ. We are truly free. So come, let us adore him. And if I don't see you, Merry Christmas, because it truly is because he lives. Pray with me. Father God, you are so good. You are the master storyteller, the master redeemer, friend of sinners, lover of our souls, executor of justice and grace simultaneously. Lord, we worship you. We praise you. And as we reflect on your entering into our broken world, your bending down and feeding us, let us come to the table this morning and be fed. And remember what you did for us on the cross, Lord. Unlike every other worldview and religion that says do this, do that, you say rest. Lay, rest, eat, it's been accomplished. Lord, why don't I believe that all the time? I confess that it's so hard to live my life in a way um, that tells the world that I believe that you have given me rest. So I strive and perform and fail over and over and over again. But you say, come, my son, out of bondage. You are done. You are free. You are loved. Wash us clean, Lord. Shield us from temptation. Remind us of your grace and your love and your beauty this morning. And let us celebrate well together your birth and your entry into our world of sin. Lord, we love you. We love you so much. We trust you. Help us where we don't. We pray all this in your son's mighty name.